The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 2 and verse 6. In the sixth verse of the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no men passed through, and where no men dwelt. Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt? And so on. Now this word, neither said they, reminds us that uh, something prior to this has been said about these children of Israel, whom the prophet Jeremiah is addressing in those words. And uh, many of you will recall that uh, last Sunday night and the previous Sunday night also, we have been considering the message of this second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. And we are doing so for one reason only. Here God is to be found reasoning and expostulating with the children of Israel. They were in a terrible predicament at this particular point. Things, in a sense, could not be worse with them, in every respect. They'd gone down religiously, they'd gone down morally, and now there was the acute problem of their military condition also. The mighty Chaldeans were preparing to attack them and to destroy their city and to take them captive to their land of Babylon. It was a time of exceptional crisis in the story and the history of the children of Israel. But this was the supreme tragedy, that in that position, they were refusing to turn to the only one who could deliver them and provide them with a way and a means of salvation. And the extraordinary thing that we have here is that God himself, the one whom they are ignoring in this way, comes down, as it were, to them in the person of the prophet Jeremiah and tries to awaken them to the realization of the utter folly of what they're doing. He shows them the utter unreasonableness of their persistence in following their own devices and refusing to turn back unto him. Now that is the great message of this entire chapter. And I'm calling attention to it, I say, because, of course, what is said in this chapter is what God is still saying to mankind. This is what he's saying tonight to every individual. It is what he is saying to the whole world. This is God's message to the human race. You get it right through this book from beginning to end. The form varies, but the message is always just that one. It's a message, I say, to the individual. Are you unhappy? Do you feel that everything's gone wrong? Do you feel desperate? Are you in a position that you don't know what to do nor where to turn? Do you feel that somehow or another you've made a mess of everything, your life, and you don't know what to do? Well, now, this message comes to you. It's to people like that this message was addressed. 
And the message is, you are doing everything except the one thing that rarely can deliver you. Why are you so foolish? Why are you so stupid? Why are you so unreasonable, so utterly irrational? God takes them through the whole situation, and he analyzes it, places it before them, dissects it, as it were, and says, this is what you're guilty of. Can't you see this thing? God pleads with them for their own sakes to listen, to act upon it, to repent and to turn unto him. Now, he, I say, breaks it up and puts it point by point. Now, last uh, Sunday night we were dealing with the first point, uh, which is in verse 5, where we read, Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? You see, this is the first charge. That to turn away from God is the height of unreason. I put it like this. What's wrong with God? What's wrong with God that mankind should turn away from him as they do, thinking they're doing something wonderful, priding themselves on it? They do it with sarcasm and derision. What reason have they for doing it? What has God done as he puts it? What iniquity have you found in me? And the answer is, there is none. And look what they've gone after. They've gone after vanity. Idle, empty, useless things. And in doing all this, of course, they've just become vain themselves. They're fools. Anybody who turns from the living God to worship any sort of idol or false god is, is nothing but a fool. There's nothing there. There's nothing in it. That's the terrible thing about the world tonight, isn't it? If they could demonstrate to us that they're following something wonderful, something noble, something really uplifting and elevating, well, at any rate, we'd be prepared to listen. But look at the things that men and women are going after. They think we are mad by being in a place of worship like this and considering this old book. But what are they doing? What are they following? Well, listen to the sort of music they're listening to. Look at the form of pleasure they're going in for drugging themselves, drinking themselves into a state where they've no longer got self-control nor a sense of discrimination. The utter superficiality and the vanity of it all, trying to persuade themselves they're happy when they're really not. They know they won't be happy tomorrow morning and yet they go back to it. The vanity of it all. Isn't it tragic? Now, said God, why don't you wake up and realize what you're doing? You've left me without any reason. Look what you're following. Can't you see what utter folly you're guilty of? But you know he doesn't stop at that. He goes on. And that's what we're looking at now. This second thing which he says in this sixth verse. Do you know there's something even worse than that? What is that? Well, the thing that is worse is that mankind should deliberately turn away from and reject what God has provided for our deliverance and salvation. Now, that is the further thing to which I want to call your attention. It is, I say, to ignore what God has already done for our deliverance, for our salvation. Now, here, of course, in the case of the children of Israel, it is put in the historic terms of how God delivered them out of the land of Egypt. It's the great story of the Exodus, which you can read in the book of Exodus. There you see where his people met, in a terrible predicament. Slaves, as I'm going to show you, captives, helpless. 
And God went down and delivered them. He did it. Took them out of the captivity and the bondage and led them into the promised land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey. But here they are, you see, some centuries later, in the same position. But the one thing they will not do is to consider what God did when they were in Egypt and turn back to him. They ignore it completely. They dismiss it. They reject it. They will not turn back to this God in spite of what he's done. Now, my dear friends, this is all, you see, but another way of saying that the greatest tragedy in the world at this minute is just this, that God has already done the one thing that can save either the individual or the entire human race. And yet the world won't listen to it. The world ridicules it. The world scoffs at it, even as these children of Israel did of old. You talk to people about the blood of Christ and they'll blaspheme it. Blood, they say. They're not interested in blood and in a theology of blood. The death of Christ, that's what... They want something practical. They won't accept it. They reject it as these did. What God has done. You see, what God did to the children of Israel is but... Uh, it is history, of course. It's true. But that is not only true history. It was meant at the time to be a foreshadowing, a prophecy of what God was going to do in a spiritual manner for the souls of men. That is why you get these constant references back to it in all the subsequent portions of the Bible. The captivity of Egypt and the deliverance out of it is but a perfect portrayal of the sinful state of mankind and the salvation which God has already provided in the person of his only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and him crucified, buried, risen again, ascended, seated at the right hand of God's glory and power. Now, that is the subject, therefore, which is obviously before us. Man, I say, is tonight individually and collectively, as he is, for one reason only, and that is his failure to realize what God has done in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask my question, therefore, at this point. Do you realize what he's done? Have you ever said in any shape or form, where is the Lord that has done this great thing? Have you ever turned unto him in your need, in your desperate need? That, I say, is the cause of all our troubles, because if we only turn to him and cry out unto him in this way, the salvation will immediately be provided. Well, let me imitate what was done here. That's all I've got to do. You know, my friends, there's nothing I say more terrible and more tragic in the world than the way in which men and women are rejecting and spurning this offer of salvation that is made in Jesus Christ. They don't know what they're doing. If they did know, they wouldn't do it. It is the failure to realize what is involved in rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ that accounts for the rejection. <coughs> 
But thank God, God calls his preachers, his servants, to open the eyes of men and women to what they're doing as he sent Jeremiah. I say it in all humility, I'm in this pulpit because I believe that he has sent me to deliver this message. It isn't mine. It is the message that is given to me in this world. God, give me power to present it and give everybody power to hear it. What is it? Well, look, says God, at what you're refusing, what you're rejecting. What does it mean? Well, it means this, you see, that anybody who refuses this gospel and rejects it doesn't realize what his state or condition is by nature. That's ultimately the reason why people don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've never seen any need of him. They say, why should I believe in him? That means, you see, that they're not aware of their state and condition as they are by nature. Now, let's look at it as it's put here first in this Old Testament way. Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Now, you see, the point is this. The land of Egypt was not the homeland of the children of Israel. They were not Egyptians. They didn't belong to Egypt. They were a people that had lived in this other land of Canaan, where God had taken that man who was called Abram and whose name was turned into Abraham. And there they were living, you remember, in that land. But because of a famine, they'd had to go down into Egypt. And there they were in Egypt. Not their place, not their home. They're out of position. They're not in the place they were meant to be. Now then, this is the first thing I say that is true about the whole of the human race by nature. And it is the failure to understand this that ultimately accounts why anybody rejects this gospel and this great salvation. My dear friend, have you realized that you are in a spiritual Egypt? Which means this, I say, that you're not in the right place. You are not where you were meant to be. As the children of Israel were away from home and in the wrong place and had all the consequences of being there, so I say it is true of the whole of the human race to be in the wrong place. We are not in the right position. What do you mean, Sir Simon? Well, let me put it quite simply. You know the world isn't what it's meant to be. Not one of us is what we were meant to be. Now, there's no question about this. This is the great message of the Bible. Where was man meant to be? Was he meant to be in this world as it is tonight? Most certainly not. This world has become Egypt. Where was man meant to be? He was meant to be where he first was, in paradise. The Almighty God made a perfect world, and he made men perfect. We must start with this. Man was never meant to be what he is. He was never meant to be where he is in this world as it is tonight. He was there in paradise in utter, absolute perfection. He was perfect as God made him in his own image. So you see, man as he is, as he finds himself in this world by nature, He is not in the right position. He is not in the right place. We were meant to be living under the smile of God. 
We were meant to enjoy fellowship with God. We were meant to live a kind of righteous and holy life as the companions of God. That was what the human race were, was destined for. That is what we were all meant to be. We were meant, I say, to be living in the sunshine of God's face. We were meant for joy, for happiness, for peace, mutual understanding. We were meant together as God's people ever to live as under his eye and to walk and to live and to work and to do all we do for his everlasting glory. And as we were doing so, we were meant to have his blessings showered upon us. But you see, that isn't the case, is it? Indeed, that is the whole trouble with the world tonight, that it is not living in the sight of God and in the face of God. It is not living under God's blessing and benediction and benison. No, no, it's the exact opposite. The world is out of position, it's out of place, and everybody that is in it. We've all become unnatural. Man as he is is a travesty of what man was meant to be. I think I once quoted a saying of an old uh, preacher of some three centuries ago who said this, which is nothing but the simple truth about men as he is by nature. He said, you know, you sometimes go into the country and you suddenly see a ruins, an old castle or something. Utter ruin, with ivy and thorns growing all over it. It's the place where the animals play, there it is just a ruin. But you see a notice, an inscription saying, Once upon a time, so-and-so, some great name, lived here. And that is the condition and the position of the soul of men at the present time, said that old preacher. Man is a ruin. And on the ruin you can put this inscription, God once lived here. But he's no longer there. He's no longer there. Man is living a life without God. Away from where he was meant to be. But it's even worse than that, you see. He is under the wrath of God. Now, I don't want to stay with this this evening. But if you were to ask me why the world is as it is this very night, that would be my answer. This is a part of the wrath of God upon man in his sinful, alienated condition. Now, I'm not saying that. That's not my own idea. That is the teaching of this book, the Bible, the Word of God. If you want a, a summary of it all, let me commend to you to read tonight when you go home the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, begin at verse 18 and go to the end of the chapter. And this is what you'll find that the Apostle Paul there teaches that there have been periods in the history of the world when because of its terrible sinfulness, because of its turning away from God and following its own devices, because of its arrogant blasphemy against the name of God, God has just abandoned them. He's just withdrawn all his restraining influences, all his gracious influences. He has left the world to itself so that men might, as it were, ferment in their own evil and iniquity and produce all the horrors and the foulness 
that you will find described in that portion of Scripture. What will you find described there? Well, you'll find described there what you're seeing in your newspapers every day. Immorality, A, or non-morality. Sex perversions, every foulness that you've ever read of or can imagine, they're all described there. That's the modern world, isn't it? That is why I'm suggesting to you that what is happening today is nothing but a manifestation of the wrath of God against sin. God is leaving men to himself. Men have said he can carry on without God. Very well, God says, carry on without me. And, and this is the result, you see. This is why you've had two world wars. This is why everything is so uncertain at the moment. This is why we're trembling on the brink of something till, still more awful. It's God punishing the sin of men, manifesting his wrath upon ungodliness and unrighteousness by keeping back, holding back his restraining influences in order to bring mankind to its senses. That's the first thing. Man is not in the place where God meant him to be. He's in Egypt instead of Canaan. Well, then the result of that is he's in a place of slavery and of bondage. You remember the story? Taskmasters. Children of Israel made to make bricks. And then the supply of straw was withdrawn. And they're told to produce still more bricks. The exact opposite of what's happening in this country today, you see. Increased production with smaller materials, less pay. That was the condition of slavery in which they were in that land of Egypt. And it was terrible. The taskmasters came and whipped them. They slashed them. They did everything they could to humiliate them. There it was. In Egypt, not Canaan, and in this awful slavery and bondage. What are you talking about, says someone? Well, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Every one of us born into this world is born a slave. Every one of us is born into a condition of bondage. What bondage? What slavery, says someone? Oh, I'll tell you. Bondage and slavery to sin. That thing I'm referring to, which has got you completely in its grip. You try to give it up and you can't. You say you're going to give it up, but you can't. You kick yourself for doing it again, but still you do it. Why do you do it? There's only one reason. You do it because you can't stop. You're a slave. You're being driven. You're being mastered by somebody. You're under a terrible power, much greater than yourself. And you can't give it up. You're a slave to your own lusts and passions and desires and other things that are in you. No, this isn't only referring to things in the body, you know. I'm thinking of people who can't control their temper. Also. And people who are consumed by jealousy and envy and malice and spite and hatred. You can't stop it. You're a slave. We're all slaves and we're all in a condition of bondage. And look at the way in which people are slaves to the way of the world and the thing to do. That's why they're doing them. They're carried along helplessly down the stream. They're made by the world and its organs of opinion to dress in a given way, to talk in a given way, is there anything so pathetic as these fashions and how people automatically follow them? That's slavery, my friends. Where's individual opinion? Where's original thinking? No, no. Everybody's following the crowd. That's slavery, that's bondage. And the, the masters controlling it decide to change the direction and everybody goes in the new direction. That's bondage and slavery. And the slavery to people and their opinions. 
If only we could free ourselves from other, other people and their opinions, oh, how much happier we'd be, but we can't. Lives are controlled by what are they going to think? What are they going to say? That's sheer slavery. You know, young people come to me and others sometimes and they say, I ought to have come to see you long ago. I say, well, why didn't you? Well, you know, they say, I felt the power of the thing. I knew it was right. Well, I said, why didn't you? Well, I began to think what they'd say when I got back to the lodgings or what they'd say in the college tomorrow or what they'd say in the works or what my people would say. That's slavery. Seeing the truth, but afraid, afraid of opinions, afraid of people. My friends, this is nothing but sheer slavery. There are so many people who say, I'm not a Christian. And you say, why are you not a Christian? Well, they say, no intelligent man any longer believes that. That's the only reason they can give. They know nothing about it. Well, now that's slavery, you see. That's the desire to be considered clever or learned or having ability of being modern that you've done away with all this. Of course, when you were a child, you were sent to Sunday school and you had to go. But now, I became a man and I put away childish things. I stopped going to... And I'm not interested in religion. It's the hallmark of being grown up. Oh, but that's nothing but sheer slavery. It's unintelligent. Thus, you see, without my keeping you on this, man by nature is not only where he shouldn't be, but he's in a state of terrible slavery and bondage. And the result of this is there is suffering and there is misery. Oh, the misery. God looked down and said, I have seen the misery of my people. And they were utterly miserable. And you know, the life of sin is a miserable life. It's an unhappy life. Now, be frank and honest. Am I not saying the truth? Are you happy? Are you happy when you've behaved like an animal? Haven't you been conscious of a sense of shame and of unworthiness? The Bible tells us that most sins are committed at night and in the dark. It says those who are not Christians are children of darkness, children of the night. Why? Well, you know, it's because of this sense of shame. You wouldn't like to do the things in daylight that you do in the dark. Why? Well, because there's something deep within you still that tells you the thing is wrong. It's unworthy. And so when you do it, you suffer for it. You cannot find happiness and joy in the life of sin Oh, the whole story of history tells us that. You see, it's our blindness to the lessons of history that makes every generation go on repeating the same old error. Ah, says some young person, I'm finished with God and with chapel, with Sunday school. I'm now going to London. I'm going to enjoy life. I'm going to have freedom and happiness. You know, the miserable rowers in the West End and the East End of London tonight once set out like that, you know. The people whose bodies are wrecked by diseases as the result of their sin. They once said that. The people who are jaded and exhausted, who because of their inordinate affections have got their livers diseased and their nerves fevered and broken down, they all said that. The people who break their married marriage vows and think they're going to find great happiness, you know, they don't seem to find it, do they? They have to see, seem to me to go on repeating the thing. It becomes a sort of serial, one after another. No, no, there is no joy there. It leads to misery. The way of the transgressor is hard. I'm speaking experience. We all know this. You'll never get real satisfaction from sin. There's always the morning after. 
There's always the bitterness of remorse. There's always the sense of shame. There's always the sense of unworthiness. Oh, it was a state of misery. It was a state of suffering and of unhappiness. And finally, it was a state of utter and complete helplessness and hopelessness. They could do nothing about it. Nothing at all. It was all very well to feel they'd like to get out of it, but they couldn't get out of it. Here was the taskmaster and his whip and his lash. Try as they would, they could not get out. They were hopeless, helpless slaves in Egypt under the alien power. And that is the simple truth about everybody born into this world. We are, I say, not only the slaves of sin and Satan, the world, the flesh and the devil. We cannot set ourselves at liberty. Nobody's ever done it. No system, no scheme invented by men can possibly do it. You see, I have to go on saying the same thing here because people still believe that education can do it. They still believe that civilization can do it. Well, all I ask is this, if, in the, if they can do it in the name of God, why are they not doing it? Look at our world tonight. Look at the state and the condition of people who may be highly educated, brilliant in their faculties and propensities and in their professional calling, but look at their lives. They cannot get liberty. Man cannot free himself. He's up against a power greater than himself. He cannot change himself. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? That's the question. And they cannot. And no more can any man conquer his every enemy and temptation and deliver himself and set himself free and enjoy the life of God and get those things that can only come from God. A man can't move himself from Egypt to Canaan. It's impossible. You cannot extricate yourself from the problem that is within you and around you. You cannot emancipate yourself in a spiritual sense. That's the first lesson. These people didn't realize that, otherwise they'd have turned to God. Anybody who is not a Christian hasn't realized that. Because the moment a man realizes this, there's only one thing to do. Well, that brings me to my second point. There is the first that men, as a, not as a non-Christian, doesn't realize the truth about himself and his position. But, oh, you see, this is what makes it so tragic. He doesn't realize what God has done. God has provided a way of deliverance. Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt? You see, though the conditions were so utterly hopeless and impossible as I've been describing them to you in that land of Egypt, the fact is that the children of Israel did go from Egypt to the land of Canaan, and they had to go through many obstacles, Red Sea, wilderness, all these places that are described here, they were taken safely through. They couldn't do it, but yet it happened. How did it happen? The Lord did it. The Lord did it. And this is, I say, the point at which the sheer madness and irrationality of a world in sin tonight manifests itself most and most clearly and obviously. What I am holding before you tonight and reminding you of is what God has already done for this world. 
What I want to emphasize is this, that it is God who has done it. Not men. It is all of God. Where is the Lord that brought us? Yes, my friends, this Christian salvation is entirely from God. Let me put it like this to you. I'm not here to appeal to you to become a Christian, because you can't become a Christian. What says somebody? I can't become a Christian. You can't. But they say, if I live a good life, surely I'll become a Christian. No, you won't. You'll become a better man than you were, but that doesn't make you a Christian. But surely, if I decide to give up certain things and to start reading my Bible and praying, or if I take some decision, that makes me a Christian. No, it doesn't make you a Christian. It is only the Lord who can make anybody a Christian. It is entirely his action. Isn't this the gospel? Listen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it's God's action. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. If God hadn't taken this action, there would be no hope at all. If God hadn't gone down, as he told Moses at the burning bush, that's why I read that section to you from Exodus 3 at the beginning, if God hadn't, as it were, come down and said, I am going to deliver those people, they would never have been delivered. They would have remained in the captivity and the bondage and the misery of Egypt. It is God who did it all from beginning to end. They were led by God. And this is the first thing we've got to understand about this Christian salvation. I want to put these things very plainly and simply. We are living in a world that may go up on fire at any moment. And your whole eternal destiny depends upon your knowing and realizing this. You can never make yourself a Christian. Never. It is God alone who can deliver and God alone has provided the way of salvation. Let me emphasize this. He has done it in spite of us. Did you notice how Paul put it in Romans 5? While we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for whom? The ungodly. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. You see, while we were without strength, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies against God. God did this. I'm preaching history to you. And the history that I'm preaching is this. That God, nearly 2,000 years ago, did something that provides and opens for you a way of salvation. It is all from God. It is all of grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is all from God. The Lord delivered, I am come down, he said to Moses. You see, there was Moses keeping the sheep. He'd done it so many days, he wasn't thinking at all. He probably had said farewell to his companions forever. He said, it's hopeless. I can do nothing. I'd better give, live my life henceforth as a shepherd. He'd been doing it for 40 years. And here he was doing Suddenly one afternoon, he's arrested by a sight. A bush burning and yet not consumed. He says, what's this? I'm going to turn aside to see this great side. And suddenly a voice came out of the bush saying, hold back, stand, wait for a moment. The ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. God was speaking to him. God had come to meet him. 
to give him a message and to send him as the deliverer of the children of Israel out of captivity and to give him power to do so. My dear friend, have you realized this? This to me is the most wonderful thing in the world tonight. That though the whole world has sinned against God, though we've been arrogant and proud in our rebellion and in our blasphemy against God, God so loved that world. Now then, salvation is all of the Lord, it's all of grace, but let me take you to this. The way in which he's done it all, oh, this is the enormity of sin, that men and women can reject such a salvation that has been provided in such an amazing and extraordinary manner. What is it? Well, in that old age, God, I say, went down, gave power to his servant to work miracles and to do this and that. Read the story for yourself in the book of Exodus. It was wonderful, but it pales into insignificance when you put it by the side of what God did in his own son. Listen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Isn't it an amazing thing that the world isn't thrilling at the realization of that fact tonight? Isn't it almost incredible that men and women should be seeking pleasure and happiness in vanities that can never satisfy and trusting to statesmen or anybody else when God nearly 2,000 years ago sent his only begotten son into this world? News, exciting news, headlines, Bold type. That's the thing we're after, isn't it? Well, if you are, my friend, listen to this. A little babe was born in a stable in a little place called Bethlehem. There was no room in the inn. The place was crowded out, and people then were as selfish as they are now. They say, what's a pregnant woman to me? I've booked my room. I booked it months ago. No use coming to me and saying this woman's pregnant on the point of giving birth to it. I'm not going out. No, no. They were, they were like that then as they're like that now. Everybody for himself. Every nation for itself. And therefore building up armaments, getting rid Selfishness is the cause of war. They were like that then. However, the babe was born as a consequence, you see, in a stable. And they put him into a manger. Do you know who he was? That was the only begotten son of God. That was the word, the word that was with God. The word without whom nothing was made that was made. The Son of God. Eternal Son of God. He's been sent into this world. And you see, in coming in that way, look how he humbled himself. Laid aside the signs of his glory. Made himself of no reputation. Born in the likeness of a man. Read his story. Lived as a little boy. Worked as a carpenter. The Son of God. The one through whom everything was made and without whom nothing was made that was made. There he is. Look at him at the age of 30. Sets out in his public ministry. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the Son of God. Look at the way they treated him. He didn't grumble. He didn't complain. Look at him submitting to baptism. He who'd never committed a sin insists upon being baptized. Why? Oh, because, you see, he's not only taken our nature unto himself, he's taken our sins. He's identifying himself with us in our failure and in our sin. He's putting himself in our position. 
Look at all the contradiction of sinners against him, the blasphemy, the way they buffeted him and jeered at him and spat in his face. At last they arrest him, they try him, they condemn him, put a crown of thorns on his head and then jeer him as he's dying on that cross and he died there. Why was he dying there? Now this is the amazing thing. He was dying there to make a way of salvation. The only way whereby anybody could be saved. That's what's happened. That's already happened, you know. That's why we're going to take the bread and the wine. We are calling to, re to remembrance the death of the Lord, something that happened long ago. He said, do this in remembrance of me. It's happened, my friend. It's not something that's going to happen. It's taken place. What was it? Oh, it was God making a way of deliverance for the poor, captive, miserable people in bondage that they might enter into the Canaan, the place where they were meant to be. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet without strength, our sins were placed upon him. He took them upon himself. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God did it. He smote his only son. Why? Well, because his son had become my representative and had taken my sins and my guilt upon himself. That's happened. And though he died and was buried, he rose again. Showing that he had completed the work and defeated every enemy of men and of his soul. And what's the result of all this? Well, you see, the result is this. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know what's happened? Well, it's this, you see. Christ's death delivers any man who believes on him from the wrath of God. From this terrible separation from God. It reconciles him to God. It gives him a free pardon for all his sins. It restores him to companionship with God. He is truly reconciled with God. Not only that, you see. He is delivered from the dominion of sin and of Satan. Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The law of God is satisfied. The wrath of God is turned aside. God himself has provided the way that man might be restored to his favor, might bask under the sunshine of his face and of his blessing, and might have a new life and a new start, become a new creature. In a new life and in a new world. That's what God has done. Yes, but you see, the children of Israel, though God had done that when they were in the bondage and the captivity of Egypt, were not asking, where is the Lord who did that? And the trouble is that the world tonight is not asking. Where is the God that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life? My dear friend, I'm talking about the world, but I'm asking you a plain question. 
Have you asked that question? Have you realized your position, your plight, and have you cried out, Where is the God that has so loved me as to send his only begotten Son to die for me? Are you turning to him? Are you thanking him for what he's done? Are you praising him? Are you living to his glory? Israel was not. And the message that God gave to Jeremiah was this. Go and tell those foolish people that they're mad. Where is their gratitude? Oh, the base ingratitude. That they've forgotten what I did for them when I saved them out of Egypt. They've forgotten it. They're not thanking me for it. Oh, the baseness of such ingratitude. But can't you see that your position, if you're not a Christian, is infinitely worse? Have you ever thanked God for sending his son to die for you? Have you ever thanked the son of God for dying for you and for your sins? Oh, there's nothing more terrible than this. This is God's greatest action. God himself can do nothing beyond that. He gave his only begotten son to that death of the cross. He spared him nothing. Yet you've said perhaps until this moment, what's that to me? That's nothing. I'm not interested. I'm out for the life of the world and enjoyment and... Don't talk. Nothing. No interest. Nothing at all. Oh, my dear friend, can't you see? That is the most awful, the most terrible thing a man can ever do. Murder's nothing in comparison with that. You're flouting God's greatest gift, throwing it back into his face. And at the same time, of course, you are refusing the only thing that can save you to all eternity. There's a day coming when there'll be no London, I don't know when, but there's a day coming when there will be no London. It may be that you'll have died and have gone out of it, so you'll have none of its pleasures and all it's got to offer. But you'll still be there and you'll be face to face with God. There is only one way that can enable a man to face God without fear. Indeed, to face God with rejoicing, with praise and with thanksgiving. What is it? Well, it is this, that God's only Son has died for you and for your sins. That you believe that, that you trust yourself to that alone, and that you want to spend the rest of your life in showing him your gratitude for what he's done. It doesn't matter what people may say. Though your family and the whole world may laugh and roar at you, though they may say that you've gone psychological, become soft, let them say what they like. You say, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Can you afford to take a risk about this? With life as it is, with all its terrible uncertainty at this hour, my friend, there is a way for you to escape from the bondage and the captivity of sin and evil in yourself and in the world, to get free from the condemnation of the law of God, to be safe in time, in death, and to all eternity. What is it? Oh, it is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, to believe that he died for you and for your sins, 
and to give yourself and your life to him. Have you done it? God was saying here that if you haven't, it is sheer madness. It is the height of irrationality that you're a fool. You've got nothing yourself. You are refusing God's own offer, the only offer that can deliver you. Israel refused. And they were conquered, their city was destroyed, they were carried away into the captivity of Babylon. And if you die still refusing, terrible thought, you will go to eternal loss, to eternal bondage, to eternal misery. Can anybody be so mad? Be guilty of such base ingratitude. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.